Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we'll be diving deep into the federal election with Denham Sadler, National Affairs Editor from Innovation Oz. But first, our wrap of the latest tech news with Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. Lizzie, you've chosen to um, wax lyrical on the plunge in crypto. I know this is an issue close to Dan's heart being a crypto bro, but things have been going a bit south for those that think this is going to be um, their pathway to all sorts of wealth in the future. Yeah, people may have been following this, but even in the last three days, it's been pretty explosive. So Bitcoin is now below $30,000. Per Bitcoin, uh, which is the lowest it's been in over a year. Solana is also down 30% in 24 hours. The big story, I suppose, is Luna, which is another cryptocurrency, which has dropped 96% in the last 24 hours. And it's now below uh, 10 cents. I think about eight months ago or something, it was over $116. So a significant decline. And Luna is actually algorithmic pegged to a uh, stable coin and if you don't know what that means I can understand Uh, but in essence what it meant was that a stable coin is supposed to be something that's pegged to a fiat currency like the US dollar it's not supposed to drop below the equivalent of one to one and uh, the Luna was kind of experiment in how that would work to make uh, a cryptocurrency more trustworthy you might need to read a bit more about it if you want to know more. But in its essence, what happened was when Luna started to fall, the stable currency it was pegged to started to fall as well. And what that's meant is that people use stable coins to trade in, in various cryptocurrencies all the time. It makes it more liquid. And if you can't trust that they're actually backed by real currency, which is how they maintain that peg, then the whole system starts to disintegrate. So one of the other big stable coins where you're supposed to pay one for every one US dollar is Tether. And that fell below uh, the value of one US dollar yesterday. And that's caused huge consternation in the market because Tether is used perhaps the most out of any, well, definitely the most out of any stable coin, but it's probably one of the key foundations upon which cryptocurrency trading operates. And so there's a real sense that this could be existential for cryptocurrency trading. Coinbase as well, the platform that a lot of people use, has had an IPO and and listed. Its share price has also tanked. It's lost 56% of its value in the last five days alone. So it's unclear exactly where this is going to bottom out. But the reality is that I think this is representative, and I'm not alone here, of sheer panic on these crypto markets. It's probably been prompted by a few different things, including the tightening of monetary policy by the U.S., Federal Reserve. So, uh, you know, they're trying to curb inflation in everyday markets and um, the the value of the US dollar. And so they're doing their own thing in terms of addressing that through monetary policy, which means there's less money in the system for people to make more speculative investments in crypto. Uh, But, you know, there's probably a lot of different of those kinds of reasons, external reasons that have given rise to this. But the reality, I think, is that this has always been a bit of a Ponzi scheme where the value of these currencies is always what kind of person you can find to buy it next off you rather than any intrinsic value represented in the currency itself. Um, you know, I I think I'm hardly alone when I say that I think people should only invest money in crypto if they're prepared to lose it. And this does look like the outcome of essentially a system of currency trading that's gambling. 
that's unregulated, that is uh, characterised by wash transactions that are otherwise unlawful in, in financial markets. And the consequence is that large numbers of retail investors now, I think, will have had huge amounts of their savings wiped out, which is, is devastating. I think probably the big whales in the market might be able to consolidate their losses, but I do really think we should feel sorry for some of these crypto bros who entered the market because they thought they would get rich quick. You know, Matt Damon was on a Super Bowl ad less than six months ago saying that fortune favoured the brave and that's why you should invest in crypto. And these people are now looking down the barrel of, um, you know, financial wipeout. The pinned, mm. the pinned uh, comment on the Reddit thread for, I think, one of these, I can't remember which currency it is, is to a suicide hotline. So a lot of people are feeling pretty devastated about this. I found the observing this market to be that it's characterised largely by ridiculous buffoonery, but I also do sense that there's real human suffering going on right now, and I don't think it's going to be the big fish that um, that feel that, but actually retail investors. So, um, mm. pretty pretty bad outcome for them. And and then there's a real question, I suppose, as to whether the rest of us might be dragged into it, given. You know, one in five people, I think, in Australia have invested in crypto. So, you know, not um, not as much of a fringe product as it perhaps used to be. And there's a real question around whether it could have an impact on mainstream markets as well. That kind of segues into our resident crypto bro. Dan, are you breaking into a cold sweat at this point? I don't know if I go as far as describing me as a crypto bro, but I do remain optimistic about uh, well, blockchain technology broadly, and I, I do think there is some value in some of these crypto assets, although I stress that is some. I mean, I think I, not for the first time, Lizzie and I disagree on 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 this, um, but there are some things that Lizzie said uh, that I do agree with, and that is that so many of these coins are just pure speculation and not tied to anything of actually any, any value. And... I think what this plunge shows is, is that the cryptocurrencies are basically not immune from the dynamics of the rest of the market. I mean, many people invested in crypto because they thought otherwise. They thought it was a hedge against um, some of their other investments. But as crypto investments become mainstream, they, they're behaving in the, in the same way or in a similar way to other investments. And the reality is when you've got high inflation, economic uncertainty, then, then people are going to get nervous about their high-risk investments, whether that's equities, high-yielding bonds, or, or as it turns out, cryptocurrencies. And I think what we saw, to Lizzie's point, what we saw during the pandemic is, is governments around the world doling out heaps of cash, economies booming, and the share market going bananas. And all this happened when cryptocurrencies went mainstream. So you had a whole new class of people investing in this for the first time. And yeah, to your point, Lizzie, I think um, there was a Senate report last year that said 17% of Australians now own some form of crypto assets, and most of that is, is in Bitcoin. So there's, there's going to be a lot of pain as, as, as there is in the other markets as well, as people who really don't know what they're doing in, in this space have, who've been influenced by Matt Damon with crypto.com and other things uh, are realising that they've, they've blown a whole bunch of money. The, the one part, though, where I would disagree is I think some of these assets, uh, probably Ethereum is the most prominent, but there are others, do actually have a functional value in that the, the blockchain which they are built on is, is effectively powering other applications on top of it that can be used for finance or gaming or whatever else. So they're not they're not Ponzi schemes in that sense in that they are actually being used to build something uh, and crypto assets and crypto trading does have a purpose. Uh, but you just got to be really careful. I mean, you just got to be really careful investing in these things. And, and the problem is it's unregulated. Uh, it's an unregulated space. And so unfortunately, that means that there's a lot of people that are going to lose a lot of money that, uh, that shouldn't have. 
The other place my mind goes is um, Venezuela, which I understand has um, pegged its currency to to Bitcoin. Um, what goes down there? Like, um, if we're talking about we're moving into a period of global economic downturn, which I think is inevitable, um, an entire country that's based on a, an alternate value proposition, which is dropping even quicker, seems to be like a, a death spiral, doesn't it? I mean, look, Venezuela making this there, uh, I, I think they're, um, I don't know what the term is, not their default currency, but but certainly um, one that uh, their economy was effectively built on, was a, was a recognition of the fact, I think, that they had such spiralling inflation that their own fiat currency was, was becoming worthless. And so Bitcoin seemed like a better option. I think if Bitcoin looks like a better option than your government-backed fiat currency, You've got pretty significant problems, um, <laughs> and I don't, I don't think any a lot of the crypto bros got very excited about the fact that Venezuela did this. I was not one of those people. It just it just struck me as madness, if you like. And if anything, it showed that Bitcoin's got a long way to go before it becomes uh, the mainstream stable cryptocurrency that I think a lot of people think it will be in time. It, it maybe we may be talking about El Salvador here, who's pinned their currency. To Sorry, Bitcoin. El Salvador, um, you're right. I mean, this is commonly put by crypto bros that uh, this. Uh, kind of non-fiat currency gives people the freedom to then move their money around without being dependent on centralized banks. And if you if you're part of a, an unstable democracy where the currency is unstable, this is somehow liberating for you. But I don't think there's that many currencies that lose this kind of value in such a short period of time. Uh, I just think we ought to think about who um, services who what. What kind of customer of these currencies we're talking about? People who want um, to avoid scrutiny, who aren't frightened or um, concerned by a totally unregulated market, who possibly want to buy things that they couldn't buy using regular currency uh, for that reason. They want anonymity in their financial dealings. And uh, this is pretty much criminals, you know, people who are are lawless. So I, I just think we do have to be a bit careful that some of the human rights claims put by people to justify these uh, currencies. I, I, I think it is important to raise, as you did, Dan, that there's a context there as to why that currency might be unstable that reflects a bigger problem. But also, who? what is the use case for these currencies? Well, at the moment, it seems to be criminal and criminal behaviour, um, as well as big whales, speculative trading, huge amounts of um, dump and drop schemes. You know, Kim Kardashian and Floyd Mayweather are currently being sued for one such scheme. Uh, engaging in like trading that makes the currency look more valuable than it is. And the people who pay the price are the last people left holding the currency, which tend to be retail investors, which is what we're seeing now. So, yeah, it's very hard to justify the, the use case for this kind of technology when the people who lose are everyday people and the people who win are criminals and, and really wealthy people. It's just... Yeah, I, I just I don't think you can wipe out the entire class, though, Lizzie, you're saying that, is, that it is all that. So, yes, I do acknowledge, obviously, Bitcoin in particular has been used for some fairly nefarious purposes because of the fact that it's not controlled by any government. But if you again, coming back to Ethereum, I mean, there are a whole bunch of gaming applications which are built on Ethereum and people use Ether to buy uh, and sell digital assets, which actually has value. And it's not, it's it's a digital asset. So, um, you know, the, the fact that people are purchasing those unique digital assets is something which is perhaps a new concept, but it's not being used for, you know, buying or, or selling drugs or laundering money or any other things like that. There are, there are real applications for this, which are coming down the pipe, which is why, I mean, genuinely, I wouldn't describe myself as a crypto bro, but I do think there is underlying value in the technology here. And there is value in having, a crypto-based currency 
that is being used for a specific application, not one that's being used for pure speculation. That's that's obviously rubbish. But but I think there are you can't wipe out the whole asset class because of this. I might bring denim in. Like, um, what what's the credibility of of crypto in the broader um, innovation ecosystem that you that you cover as the national affairs editor for Innovation Australia? Yeah, I think it had been kind of at least until this crash on the verge of kind of hitting the mainstream and getting some credibility. Like we saw there's a crypto company sponsoring an AFL team here in Melbourne. We had a Senator sell an NFT of himself racing. Like it had hit this kind of ridiculous mainstream point. But I think as soon as something like this happens and how extreme the crash is, I think it loses a lot of credibility and you've got kind of, we had a a Senate uh, inquiry into crypto reforms and kind of the government looking to regulate it. And I just just imagine stuff like this kind of pushes those reforms down the track a little while. And I think the credibility of it, exactly as Lizzie said, that this is, should be the time when it's doing really well. Like we've got a lot of uh, the markets going down around the world. There's this huge amount of instability. This should be the point when crypto kind of rises and is better than that. But it's obviously just following the market the way in a way more extreme way that I think that kind of damages its credibility as this hedge against the stock markets crashing when it's doing the exact thing same thing but in a much worse way we might move on to dan's contribution today um facebook more um revelations from inside the company and this time around the infamous takedown of um australian civil society and media just over a year ago yeah, I've got, to, I've got to stop choosing news topics that relate to the news media bargaining code, if, if for no other relation, reason than to maintain my relationship with Lizzie. But I'll, I'll talk about this. Um, I'll talk about this, this news because it was, it was a relatively big story from uh, the Washington Post, uh, sorry, the Wall Street Journal, I should say. So a bit of background. Um, many people will no doubt recall last year, just before the news media bargaining code was passed into law in Australia, um, Facebook had a pretty substantial temper tantrum. They threw all their toys out of the pram and they, and they took down all news pages without warning. Um, the only problem was that they also took down a whole bunch of other pages. So emergency services, charities, Australian publishers, uh, right at the time when Australia was starting to roll out its vaccination program. So it was a pretty uh, reckless thing to be doing. Now, at the time, Facebook claimed this was a mistake and that it was inadvertent and, and that they would get those pages back up as quickly as possible that weren't news pages. But a report published by the Wall Street Journal this week, uh, or last week, I should say, uh, made it pretty clear that it wasn't a mistake. Um, and internal whistleblowers have, have leaked a whole bunch of emails from Campbell Brown, their head of news partnerships, from their CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, and, and Sheryl Sandberg, the COO, that praised the takedown. I'll just read a couple of the comments, actually, because these are relevant. Sandberg said, uh, praised the thoughtfulness of the strategy, precision of execution, and ability to stay nimble as things evolved. This sets a new high standard. So... I mean, to suggest that this was a mistake, uh, certainly internally they weren't talking about it like it was a mistake if Sandberg was praising people at, at, at that level and saying the precision of execution was something to be lauded. Um, so, look, since then, every news publisher around the world has published very critical articles of uh, in, in the wake of this reporting uh, from the uh, the journal, uh, including The Guardian, I should say. Um, but I have to admit, when I read this, I wasn't really surprised. I mean, Facebook has consistently shown cynicism and contempt for any government around the world trying to get in its way of its of its profits or, or force it to take responsibility uh, for its massive reach. So I'd just make the point that although Facebook is claiming a massive victory from all of this internally, if you look at the concessions that they were able to make from the government at the time, they were fairly minor in my view, and that's been evidenced by the fact that Facebook has gone on to complete a whole bunch of deals with most major publishers. Now, not all, and certainly not as many as they should. We've spoken about this before. But if anything, I think what this shows is that governments 
can and should take action um, to against these publishers, um, sorry, these platforms, whether it's including things with uh, improving things with publishers or trying to get them to take the, the harms, take responsibility for the harms that their platforms create. So hopefully we're going to see more governments taking action against them. But what does everyone else think? Well, it's great to see that the old adage that, you know, um, it's never a conspiracy, it's a stuff up, doesn't hold true when it comes <laughs> comes to Facebook. So this clearly was a conspiracy. I'm interested in Lizzie, if, if Facebook has made a conscious act that has done damage to institutions, I imagine there would have been both commercial damage for civil society groups that were blocked um, and also, you know, I don't, I don't know how, how you draw the consequences down. Would there be legal actions there? Like, are you guys sniffing around a class action here at Morris Blackburn? <laughs> I'm not sure I'd tell anyone if we were, but um, <laughs> I I mean, you'd have to be able to quantify damage and loss, I suppose, if you were going to do that. But unless there's some other statutory um, broadcasting violation that they've engaged in, but I, I think that that has proven difficult to classify them under that legislation for a variety of reasons. I mean, I do um, I do think this behaviour is totally disgusting. I think um, the company has behaved incredibly badly. They've prioritised their own financial interests as a company above the needs of their users. That's, of course, uh, the way they operate, so I'm not naive about that or surprised on one level. But uh, they do talk about how they are a form of infrastructure, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg famously said that it's more like a government than a company and talked about how, you know, they introduce features all the time that are designed to make the company uh, an essential part of our lives. You know, you can you can log when you're safe from an earthquake or a flood or a fire because uh, they want to be seen as an essential provider of services. And then um, they also want the freedom to be able to completely switch that off without uh, considering the consequences to serve their own interests. So I think it is disgusting. That's the first thing I wanted to say. I mean, did it work as it is an interesting question because I understand what you're saying, Dan, about how they've had to pay people out. But, of course, there's still some outstanding um, news organisations that haven't received any funds. And I think this does signal to other countries that they have got uh, strength in their bargaining position and they are prepared to do things like essentially vacate the market, at least for news, if necessary. Uh, They did manage to negotiate a rather, well, the, the regime itself under the news media, media bargaining code is quite convoluted. You know, we, no one's actually been designated as a as a platform that is subjected to it. So all these agreements are currently being entered into uh, on a voluntary basis, essentially by the platforms. And so that kind of extra level of difficulty and bureaucracy serves them well and gives them preparation time in the event that they feel like this is no longer worth it. So. I agree they didn't necessarily uh, win the overall war, but they, they did win a few battles which changed their position long term and they've signalled to other jurisdictions that they're prepared to throw their weight around. Um, I, I assume that has helped them. So I, I don't think it's without without consequence, I suppose, is what I'd say. Yeah, Denham, how, how have you seen it from the cheap seats? Yeah, I think it, it says a lot for how worried Facebook are and were about the precedent that the bargaining code would set. And I think obviously these whistleblower claims came out as other countries are looking to do something pretty similar to Australia. So I think they obviously weren't too worried about the Australian market, obviously pretty small, but I think they were pretty scared of the precedent it would set. And I think it obviously helped them get some amendments to the code. I kind of agree with Dan that they weren't too, too big a changes and the government wouldn't have been too upset about making those. But I think, and we can't know, 
what the result and whether it was because of that, but a fact that the code actually hasn't been activated, nobody's subject to it, as Lizzie said, Facebook hasn't been designated from it, which they'll be very happy about. And I think they left open the threat that they would just do it again if they got designated too. So mm-hmm. I think any government, whoever wins the election, would be quite worried about doing it and risking the exact same thing happening again. So I think it really did help mm-hmm. their their bargaining in terms of getting designated under the code, which would be what they'd be really worried about. And there were other things beyond the um, revenue agreements too. There was stuff to do with algorithm sharing and transparency around that, which they definitely wouldn't want to do that. I think they've avoided being designated, so they'd be pretty happy with the result. And I think that, yeah, that blackout must have gone a long way to getting that result too. But the, the yeah. big achievement I think they did get from the concessions from the government is they made it harder for the government to designate them. Yeah. And so, and the, the, we see the, the the downside of that, right? Because that's meant that they've gone and given, in a sense, the middle finger to the government by not doing a deal with SBS in particular. And because of the concessions that were made, it's harder for the government to designate them now than it was previously. Not impossible, but certainly harder. It's just going to be really interesting to see what happens with Canada in particular. Are they going to do the same thing up there? Are they going to throw their toys out of the pram in Canada? And and if anything, I would hope that that would embolden the rest of governments around the world. But sorry, Peter, I'll let you make your point. I think the deals are three years that you've struck down. Are you allowed to tell us at least that? Um, I haven't ever said that. Sorry, Peter. Okay. Well, it's, it's got a, we, we will know how successful it is in the next lap. Um, because I think Denham is right that it's hard to see a government ever moving to successfully designate um, a company based on the legislation that finally landed. And I think I missed that when it first went through, particularly those notice periods um, will just turn what Rod Sims set out to be a commercial negotiation into long drawn out legislation. So I think it it did impact on the balance. Um, but to John's comment in the chat, he's right. There is no democracy while any of these social media companies are uncontrolled. And it, I go back to my hobby horse. We need to be thinking on alternate platforms to be, you know, managing our civil discourses. And um, hopefully we'll be able to think through some of those things post-election. Um, I feel like we should keep going. Um, as always, we've run over um, a time a little bit going through the, the news stories of the week. Mine was a little bit random, so I might just throw it out there. Um, there was a great story that um, Amy Denmead alerted me to. It was actually running on Yahoo Finance that I will throw in the chat. Google, and this was a surprise to me, although I probably should have known, Google employs a heap, thousands and thousands of people as subcontractors to make sure their algorithms are serving up ads that actually work. I found this was kind of a little bit counterintuitive. I always thought it was just the algorithm, but it made me think, you know, actually um, that you still need humans to test even the veracity of AIs. So there's, uh, the, the piece talks about guys who work through contractors to contractors, um, basically checking the veracity um, of what comes out the end of a search, um, particularly on the advertising platform. Um, interestingly, they're also sub-minimum wage workers and they're getting organised at the moment um, over in the States. But what made me want to sort of just roll out there again is it, it does show that even these big platforms recognise you need humans to make the systems work properly. Who would have thought? I think this is one of the foundational myths of lots of AI systems, actually. Kate Crawford's written a book called Atlas of AI. I don't know if anybody has read it, but it's worth looking at. But she talks about the way, like the material conditions in which 
um, artificial intelligence is produced and you know that includes data sets I mean we talked a little bit about this in the last episode obviously uh, but you know it also includes huge numbers of people working to correct and and um, code correctly tag even data sets themselves and then of course making amendments to how the algorithm is training itself to respond to the real world query so yeah, I think I think it is really important to remember that real people are a material resource that goes into producing AI. When you hear those reports that you know Google's latest computer took t- twenty minutes to beat uh, the best player of Go in the world or whatever, we can think, oh, that's an incredible achievement that you know got the so few resources that have gone into this. And in reality, there's a huge um, material um, behind the scenes set of resources producing this artificial intelligence on a regular basis and and usually coming from places like Amazon Turk, so micro workers, micro task workers, people who are underpaid and often also in terms of con- content moderation have to do some pretty appalling work moderating content um, that can be quite traumatising as well as more mundane stuff like what we're talking about here, which I think is important to remember. Yeah, Denim, the other subtext of this story is obviously the um, unionisation of workers on big tech platforms we've also seen some success um organizing around amazon um where else is there interesting industrial organizing going in the sector i think there's a lot going on around the gig economy and that's even kind of spread itself into even political debates recently with with labor talking about a bit recently but i think there's some interesting movements there getting some very trying to get some very basic protections from workers there that are kind of working for these big tech platforms. And we've seen some, I think it was Menulog launched a trial of that uh, started this year or last year that was actually paying their writers just minimum minimum hourly rates, like not paid by delivery. So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going in the gig economy to try and actually support workers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think on the, on the Google side of things, I was a bit surprised by it too. And I just think it's interesting that it goes back to contractors getting paid a very low hourly rate as well that are kind of underpinning these giant tech platforms. Um, so yeah, I think it's interesting that it goes back to kind of that sort of form of labor, even these really high tech companies. Mm. And I think we see that across a lot of a lot of different things as well. And Jordan's just made the point in the chat that capture verification is actually one of the biggest exercises mm. in humans training AI without actually realizing <laughs> it, which is really true. Dan? Uh, look, uh, what struck me about this, just one minor point is... Just the culture that exists in these big tech companies where if you're a computer scientist or you, you can typically go and work for these big companies and earn a really decent salary or options in the company or whatever else, but the menial tasks that involve humans are seen as sort of subclass and, and outsourced out. So you see that, as Lizzie said, with the Facebook moderators, you see it with Google with these um, people doing this whole bunch of uh, fairly menial, menial tasks, the raters or whatever they're called. And as Denon mentioned, you know, the gig economy, which is... Um, you know, all these food and delivery companies, which are, you know, the computer scientists are the ones that are working at the company making millions of dollars, but it's the people that are out there earning minimum wage or in some cases less uh, delivering the food or driving you around in, in their Ubers. They're the ones that suffer. I mean, I think it just does, we, we've got to clean this up, don't we? You can't, you can't keep having circumstances where big tech companies, usually based in Silicon Valley, reap all the profits and the benefits and a certain class of people that are very highly educated and very privileged are the ones that, that benefit. And then all the other menial tasks that these things are built on are outsourced and they're not even part of the company. I mean, I think it's about time that these um, workers started organising, so power to them.
on that note, let's turn our eyes to the upcoming federal election. Um, and Denham, you've been obviously one of the recipients of all the um, political media releases over the last month. I, I must say I've been taken by the lack of any sort of debate around the future of tech. Um, I'll start off with a couple of observations and then throw it to you and the group. I think the first one is I think there was a game plan from the Prime Minister to be much, much more bullish on regulating big tech. There was a plan that you could see play out that he's kind of stumbled at each step along the way. The idea was to go to the G20 last year and do his big um, vision statement about how he, the man who had tamed big tech for media, was now going to tame big tech for kids. And then it, that got blown up by Macron and the subs deal. Then he was going to run that inquiry over summer where there would be all these victims coming out. That got swamped by the floods. And then the idea was that there would have been this momentum that if the government was going to do anything, if returned, they were going to keep kids safe by cracking down on big tech. And I Unless I'm missing something, that hasn't landed. And I think they've kind of given up on it. And so they're, they're sort of micro messages now are more about making sure that girls play girls in the sports field or whatever they're doing. Um, but the second piece is that I think um, I haven't seen on either side kind of a framework on how tech could develop in Australia. I got really excited when um, the Human Rights Commission and Ed Santo put out their paper a couple of years ago on AI and human rights with this proposition that we could create an AI in Australia that was reflective of Australian liberal democratic values. Um, and that's still sitting on the minister's desk, although to his credit, Ed's been pushing it on through UTS. So I've invited you on to ask you what you think. I just told you what I did. So I apologise for that. But just as a framer, like there is this tough on tech and then take ownership of our future um, with tech. And neither of those storylines seem to be being played out in this election. But what is being played out? Yeah, well, I think firstly, I think you're exactly right on the big tech side of things. I think Morrison definitely planned to, to use that as more of an election thing on his big crackdown on these tech platforms. There was a huge amount of it happening at the end of last year and there were I think there were three different inquiries over summer to do with different reforms and it just all kind of stumbled. They, actually, they failed to pass two of the main bills and there were obviously all those distractions that I just don't think it was tenable for them to kind of make an election issue. There was one they've had a few weeks ago, they released kind of an online safety package, which was the only thing that I've seen from them that's kind of a big tech crackdown. It's, it's very much more of the same. There's a, there's a bit more funding for the e-safety commissioner. And there was some stuff around parental controls on smartphones. And there was also, they just recommitted to the, the so-called anti-trolling bill, which was the, the defamation reforms, which is one of their attempted crack, big tech crackdowns that really just, just kind of blew up in their faces. So um, it really hasn't been, we haven't heard anything from from the opposition in terms of kind of big tech reform or antitrust or anything like that. I think I'm glad I'm on this week because I was on last week and I have really nothing to talk about because it really has been a very quiet campaign in terms of tech. Like I really just don't think we're going to have a campaign fought over tech for a while after Malcolm Turnbull. But um, this this week, Labor's got kind of on the front foot and is at least talking about it a bit more. So um, Ed Husick is the shadow industry minister and very much the the tech advocate and the opposition's kind of finally been appearing with Albanese and they've made some announcements. Um, this morning, actually, there was a big, they, they promised a $1 billion investment fund in what they're calling critical technologies. So that's kind of AI and robotics and quantum computing. Um, and that's part of their existing, they've got a reconstruction fund, which is their kind of manufacturing, rebuilding Australia sort of fund. And they, they're promising loans, equity and, and guarantees out of that to kind of support 
companies looking at those sort of things. And obviously it's all shaped around sovereign capability as well in light of COVID. So that's kind of probably by far the biggest tech related announcement we've seen. And then yesterday they, they did a big announcement around batteries manufacturing too. So kind of a bit on the tech side of things. But that's that's really kind of the main things we've seen. They've they've backed the the tech council has kind of a jobs aim to get to I think it's one point two million by um twenty thirty. What, like, what does that mean? Does that mean well, just building big tech companies, or is there any discussion about the sort of tech we want to be nurturing in Australia? Well, that's yeah, that's why I think to your point around the Human Rights Commission report, which was amazing. I remember reading that and was like get very excited by that there isn't any broader discussion around kind of the, the ethical side of it and the regulations, like from both sides, it's very much kind of funding companies. It all comes back to creating jobs. And I think that's partly to do with kind of the Turnbull era of, of innovation policy scared everyone off of losing their jobs. So now every tech announcement that we get sent, it's all to do with the jobs they're going to create, which those numbers are usually picked out of the yeah. air. But yeah, every, a lot of it's about jobs rather than kind of creating the framework or kind of the Australian AI stuff that you were talking about, there's, there's not much, there's no comprehensive or like bigger picture looking with technology at all. Like there's been a bit more from labor from, from the government. It's all very grab baggy. It's a bit hodgepodge with like, like yes, late yesterday, they announced some internet of things, cybersecurity guidelines. They've announced some big cyber spending, but it's all in kind of the ASD. It's all spy cyber sort of stuff. Um, there's really no bigger picture stuff. There was the digital skills pass thought earlier this week. That's kind of a LinkedIn app or something. Maybe I'm not quite sure what that is, but um, yeah, there's no, there's no bigger picture kind of looking at, at Australia's role and kind of the growth of new technologies or anything really interesting like that. I think so, like so a lot of labor funding. is tech as magic pudding that it's just going to naturally grow the economy and it's naturally going to be good. Is that kind of where you think they're coming from? Yeah, I, I think it's very much around we can fund these tech companies because they'll create jobs. It's, it's, it's as an industry policy, I think, as, as looking as a job creation thing first and foremost and less at the type of companies that might be created by funding an, an AI defence company or something. And a, a huge amount of the focus is on the opportunities for tech companies in defence, but obviously there's less focus on what those companies might be doing and whether it's actually good good for society or not so i think it just it just all comes back to jobs and the economy and yeah there's there's less mm. focus on kind of do we want these sort of companies to be mm. growing at all has digital rights watch run um putting out a report card lizzie where would where are you oh, seeing the recommendations it's always a bit challenging when you're not a favored charity of um the coalition government because you can of the guide dogs yeah, i'm not the guide <laughs> dog they teeter close to the edge of various charity laws so we have to be careful i mean one I wonder about the Labor Party. I don't know whether you've got any thoughts about this, Denim, but, um, you know, the NBN and its failings have been brought into sharp relief. You know, supposedly the rollout is finished, but it's still a patchwork of technologies. There's still huge gaps in regional areas and it's not what we were promised. And I do wonder why they don't campaign a bit harder on this uh, because it seems to me that it's a way into... Um, seats that might be otherwise a bit hostile to them, um, particularly thinking about Joel Fitzgibbon phenomenon where it's a regional rural area and the Labor Party struggles, takes a bit of focus off the the inner city and, and the nationals then uh, get a bit more pressure put on them. And I do wonder why that's kind of missing from the campaign uh, because that's also potentially job creator, uh, you know, both in terms of the infrastructure but also who can work and from where. Uh, and the other thing I think we should talk about at some point is privacy because there's been 
reviews and stuff about that and it doesn't have to be now necessarily but i do wonder why that they're both kind of silent on this because everyone's well, it's lapsed hasn't it? it the privacy legislation has all lapsed and it's I, I don't know if they reload and start again i don't know where mark dreyfus goes on that i know that's one that dan's been looking yeah. at closely well the discussion paper has had comments put in so you know you, there's, a, there's a template there for drafting something and if you were really concerned about the horrors of social media you'd you draw the link that privacy is one of the key ways to regulate it, uh, to improve people's experience of it, you know, based on the basics of what came out from Francis Haugen, that engagement at all costs is about the data-driven economy and, and you know, privacy is a tool to limit that. Um, anyway, maybe we can start with the NBN. Do you have any views, Denim, about why that is missing in action? Yeah, I, I found that really interesting too, because there, there were kind of a flurry of announcements around it right at the start of the campaign, or maybe even potentially before it got officially called, which started off the federal government. Yeah, it was a regional focus. I think they had a bit more funding around that. And then Labor came out very quickly and backed that and said they'd go further with some other initiatives. But but it has kind of disappeared since then. And I think it is it should be a Labor strong point, I think. And it's kind of should be quite an easy vote winner, I think, to kind of push for fast internet at the moment, like we're on Zoom right now and everyone's working from home still a lot. But yeah, I'm kind of surprised, I, I potentially just because it would involve a lot more spending and they're a bit worried about any big kind of financial commitments. But other than that, I, I've been surprised. And I think when those announcements came out early, I kind of assumed it would be one of the, the key planks of that is kind of a tech policy that's going to be quite popular. But um, yeah, I've, I've been quite surprised as well that it hasn't at all been central to either campaigns. And the other thing that's interesting is there's a whole lot of unfinished business um, that emerged from the ACCC digital platforms inquiry, including, you know, some of your pet topics, including, you know, the advertising monopoly. Um, where, has, have you heard anything from either side of politics on any plans or commitments to keep those processes moving forward? No, in, in fact, I find this whole thing to be really depressing. Um, it, it, just how little either of the major parties, uh, or the minor parties for that matter, are talking about tech, given how central it is to our lives now. I mean, it, it's really baffling to me that we've we've had the pandemic over the last couple of years. It's brought into sharp focus how reliant we are on tech, and even more so now than we were two years ago. And yet none of the major parties are even really discussing it. I mean, even at the last election, at least you had Morrison rather cynical ends, I think it's fair to say, but he was he was going after the platforms because he regarded it as a vote winner and any, any opportunity to beat them up, he would he would take it. The newsbeat of bargaining code was part of that, but it wasn't just that, right? There was a whole bunch of harms and whatever else. They're not even doing that this time. And, um, you know, it feels to me like we've actually, if anything, we've gone backwards in terms of uh, what major party is talking about. I do remain hopeful that, yep, my, my pet topic and the most boring topic known to man of privacy, I, I do hope that um, the discussion paper, which uh, has been underway, I hope all that work isn't thrown away because I think that you know it, it put forward some really interesting suggestions as to how we can improve the um, the privacy regime in Australia. And I hope that whoever wins government picks up on that and actually and actually does something with it. But you know, no one's even talking about those other recommendations in the ACCC. They've um, died, haven't they? They've just it's just disappeared, right? So I mean, you talk about the three big pillars that I think where we need reform. You know, privacy being probably the most urgent one, the other elements of competition and then online harms being the other. We, we really need to approach all of these things holistically. I mean, Denham, I think I know the answer to this, but is anyone in government doing this? Is there any minister or backbencher or anyone that's championing this cause from what you've seen that, that wants to get this front and centre? 
Uh, no, yeah, you get, get the answer. <laughs> not at all. Like you see ministers pick up, it's all, there's not the comprehensive look. You see a minister or a backbencher might focus on one element of it and obviously kind of what they did with passing the bargaining code, but then they they pushed a lot of the other recommendations and further reviews that are still going on now. So no, no, nobody is coming close to backing kind of the actual reform package that we've seen recommended. And yeah, it hasn't, I don't think any of that stuff has been mentioned once. And I've kind of usually watched the press conferences every day and I get the media releases. It's just not an issue. I, I think the hope is that whoever wins government, they're going to be handed some pretty comprehensive reform recommendations. I think that the ACCC, the final report from that discussion paper is meant to be handed in September, I think, to the government. And the Privacy Act review, you'd think would have to be reporting back this year. It's been going on for a while. So they're going to get given this package of potentially really major structural reforms that whoever gets in, you'd hope they they look at that mm-hmm. and attempt it. It's going to be a big task. But um, yeah, it's not not an all election issue, but I think they'll have to act or do something because they're going to get given these these reports by the end of the year. So you'd think it would be this term, hopefully. So one of I the other structural problems, though, is government itself. There is no minister that owns this. So you've mm-hmm. got you know, media regulation under the the communications minister, you've got privacy under the AG, you've got industry policy under industry, you've got competition under treasury. Um, So it, you know, it is very um, fragmented and um, it means that for each portfolio, the tech piece is just a subset and an add-on to the main game and it's nobody's main game. So, you know, the other bit is obviously national security, crypto, Cyber cyber security, I should say. Um, so I don't know how you you rebuild that. Whether it's just somebody holding it who owns it, or um, you know, because also you know, then it then the question is, so what? What's the departmental structure that exists under that as well? Um, any thoughts on that, Lizzie? Yeah, well, I was going to say part of this position that we find ourselves in is probably a result of a widely accepted small target strategy on the part of uh, the Labor Party. So it seems to me they're holding their cards close to their chest, but I, I'm i not necessarily convinced that there are cards there that they particularly want to play, but um, that's one component of it. I, it does cause me to wonder, though, like in the event, you just mentioned cybersecurity there, and I think that is the other important issue to raise in this context, whether there is greater ambition in the Liberal Party um, who have not been particularly more forthcoming. I mean, they did have announced this large cybersecurity strategy recently, but it's not as though they've been particularly forthcoming with tech policy or, or any kind of visionary stuff beyond tech as magic, which I think, as you said, Peter, I think that's the right way to describe it. There, but I can imagine, for example, if the coalition is successful, uh, with Peter Dutton bringing back in a plan for a um, facial recognition tool, going to be workable across uh, state boundaries, which is what he originally proposed and was rejected by the relevant parliamentary committee for having insufficient privacy protection. So it may be that there's stuff hiding in the wings as well on both sides, probably more likely on the conservative side in terms of ambition for uh, aggressive cybersecurity policy and investment in those kinds of technologies, but it remains to be seen, I suppose. I think the answer is you, Lizzie, or you, Pete, need to go into politics and champion this from the inside. I think that's uh, that's obviously the, the I'm I joking, of course. Answer, Ju- definitely. Judging by the look on both of your faces, oh it's never ever going it, to happen. But, but, but it's extremely unelectable. But I, but I also think there is a point there, Dan, that I think this generation of politics, very few of them have been 
politicized around the issues that we feel are really, really important. Um, whether it's Lizzie's movement for digital rights for individuals or I guess where I land, which is a bit more around regulation of, of the big platforms. So much like government, I think it's a bit of an add-on for politics as well. And I don't mm. see there's a, a defined, and maybe that's work we all need to do, but a bit of a defined almost, and I hate to use the term ideological, but I will, framework to be guiding it because I think you know, our movement is still quite fragmented. Um, and so we can't expect to have champions inside government and politics until we've articulated what it is. And so then you end up with tech being a thing that government supports or a thing government protects us against rather than something that is seen as neither good nor bad, um, but needing to be moulded and shaped for our purposes. And I don't know if that's just naive to think that happens overnight, but it would be great to see over the next decades young um, political activists entering politics with this as the thing that really fires them up the way some of us were fired up by workers' rights or the environment in previous generations. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's I interesting, know, isn't it? I would add, though, is like we have got good thinking going on about these policy issues. Like I do think the discussion paper, it's in the chat now if anyone wants to look, thanks, Denim, is on privacy is pretty good in terms of a roadmap. It takes us up to where we ought to be. Uh, when compared with our counterparts in other liberal democracies. But uh, I also think, you know, Ed Santow's report on human rights and technology was extremely detailed and thought through. I saw him, I heard him comment the other day that it was possibly the largest consultation on something like this in, in history. And having gone through that consultation on several occasions with him and providing comments, I can appreciate that. But thorough detailed policy making. And so the question is, who's going to implement it and who do, how do you find a champion? within the government to do it. And, you know, the, the fragmentation is certainly a problem. But I don't actually think you'd need to have uh, someone who's particularly committed or or grown up in a tech movement space. Like someone like Mark Dreyfus does, I would have thought, understand the value of human rights and can see it through that lens. And so I appreciate we probably need to do a bit of work in terms of putting pressure on them and diversify our movement so that it's not just digital rights people, but it's actually... Unions, other social and community organisations, welfare organisations, consumer groups who appreciate the value of these policies as well. I think partly uh, the limitation is we don't have a human rights act, so there's no Mm. human rights thinking on this stuff that might be a unifying force across multiple different portfolios and and give it that that possibility. Um, But then I would have thought there's enough sensible people who could be in office after this election who would be prepared to do it. And, and then then it's a question of how you pressure them into it. And mm. I suppose that's all my perspective as an advocacy organisation rather than necessarily electing the right people. Denim, um, present company accepted. Who do you see as leading the thought in technology in Australia? Um, I think who- that's really interesting because I think the ones that are are the groups that are a bit more focused on startup and job creation rather than the privacy groups kind of as, as Lizzie said they're probably not the most popular with with the coalition because they've done so the coalition have done a lot of policies that are definitely seen as invasive in terms of privacy so I think obviously the tech council which is, is pretty new is is very influential there in terms of tech policy kind of they're, they're quoted on media releases that go out from both major parties like they're very closely involved and groups like FinTech Australia, like these sort of advocacy lobby groups that are in tech, but are very much on the side of 
yeah, the, the magic of tech, the, the, the way you described it, of it's all a job creation thing. The more tech, the better without actually looking at these overarching issues. So I think you guys are right that there's, there's a wealth of information that anyone in politics has if they wanted to make these reforms. I think there's a problem around nobody wanting to take on these big structural changes as well. And it kind of speaks to Labor's small target. This election as well, that would take someone pretty brave to kind of gather these reports and launch actual structural reform for the better. So I think that's an issue just with wider politics as well. But yeah, I think the groups that have good ins with with mo both major parties and are quite influential are the ones that are, would just push for kind of more funding, these sort of policies, less regulation, rather than the groups that are arguing that we we do need kind of to take a second look at mm. is this tech for the good of the good of society. So the in a way, you know, and I don't think I'm telling tales out of school, but the, the the groups that are supporting the development of the of Ed's work now, the um, you know, putting some guardrails around AI are actually the businesses that will use it because they see it as risk mitigation for the long term. Um, and maybe the way through is that some of these issues need to be picked up by the broader tech industry. I know there was a forum yesterday down at the ANU around tech policy. And I think that the feedback I got was that, that, that the industry people are saying that just bashing big tech all the time, actually they get caught in the crossfire, but they haven't gone to the effort of differentiating their business models in particular the way they all use and monetize user data. Um, so there may be an, an opportunity kind of for some sort of accord building, but I think it's also revealing that for you working at the um, the cutting edge of innovation, the interesting ideas are being driven through the business and not through, you know, there it's still a very um, immature um, ecosystem around that. Yeah, and definitely in terms of, of political influence too, those are the groups that are getting their ideas more across too, which makes make sense, I suppose, because that's what the government wants to hear and wants to do with what we've seen from both their election mm -hmm. campaigns. But they're definitely the ones that are, are much closer to influencing policy, potentially, so unfortunately. But, yeah. So without wanting to put the mockers on it and also having, in you know, been terrible at picking the last election winner, mm -hmm. um, we wake up and there's a Labor government, Lizzie. Where, what's Digital Rights Watch going to do? Um, what, where, where do you go first? Like, where is the first battle? Yeah, I think it is talking to the um, ministers responsible. So that's, you know, people that we've had on here, Tim Watts, someone like Michelle Rowland as well. But then I think it all is also like Mark Dreyfus. You know, privacy comes under the AG's department formal, formally. But, yeah, there's also a role to play for not just implementing policy and finding politicians to do that, but also properly supporting the regulator. Like, that is something I think the government could do. Denham's covered this to his immense credit, I think, where lots of other journalists haven't, that the Privacy Commission is facing a funding cliff in the short term, and it's pretty appalling given that that's an enormous part of our lives. So, you, you know, the, comparing the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner with the ACCC, it's like chalk and cheese, really. And so that needs to be fixed and updated. These are things that the Labor Party could easily do, I think, without particular political blowback. I mean, it's not it's not for me to necessarily us to necessarily do that kind of work, but I think there's lots of low hanging fruit that is available, and then there's lots of ambitious stuff that probably is more our job to put to the the ministers themselves. But also, our plan is to kind of talk about how other 
constituents of the Labour Party, particularly the union movement, but other social and community organisations also have a stake in advocating on these topics directly to these to this potential government if they're successful in winning office. Um, so that it's not just seen as a digital rights thing, that actually there's a broader constituency for these kinds of reforms and they have an impact on lots of people's mm. lives in, in more sophisticated ways than just being a, you know, a, a tinfoil hat wearer who's worried about, you know, spooks and, and Mark Zuckerberg listening to your conversation. So that would be our ambition, I think, to do that yeah. kind of and build a vibrant social movement. I reckon the real sleeper there is workplace surveillance and the use of technologies in workplaces, which is obviously an emerging issue, but one where obviously a Labor constituency has real buy-in. Dan, anything yep. um, from you on a change of government without, again, wanting to put the mockers on anything? Um, look, the one thing that I'm perhaps a little bit worried about, Dylan made this point actually in the in the chat, is what happens to the debate if Labor does come into the office, into office and the coalition does go into, into opposition. Because one of the things that's really been been really discouraging about what's happened in the US is where the debate has gone is always going really, and it seems like the right of politics is mostly concerned about censorship um, and the like, despite the lack of evidence to suggest there is. We've kind of avoided that debate in Australia, thankfully, till, till now. And and if anything, that's it's almost been bipartisan in our approach to tech, technology reform in Australia, as as menial as it's been. I am a bit worried that if if Labor wins government. Um, particularly if someone like Peter Dutton ends up assuming the leadership if, of, of the, the Liberal Party, if Friedberg gets knocked out of his seat, that that could be the direction that the, the, the Liberal Party and the coalition goes and that would, that would be a bad thing for trying to get some of these big things up. So um, probably one last question for you, if I could, Denham. Have you, have you had any conversations with anyone on the Conservative side of politics or at least on any, on any side of politics that are concerned about these issues? Do you think that this is a threat that we need to take seriously? Um, I think you're absolutely right that, so far, it has been quite bipartisan in terms of the big tech sort of stuff, even though there hasn't been heaps. And I think I can definitely see it turning into something much more ugly if, if we do have the change in government in terms of that. And I think you've almost seen the start of that with some of the cultural war sort of stuff in the campaign already. Yeah, I think I do talk to, it's been hard during the campaign to get it onto any of them, but I think there are definitely people in there concerned about those issues. And you get even people kind of almost, I can think of, um, kind of send a brag is maybe one that's on that side and he's almost spoken he's he even I'm pretty sure he did a speech he was a bit concerned about the bargaining co like he has split a bit from his party on that sort of stuff um but in general not really like it's it's hard enough to get to talk to anyone let alone about about these sort of issues but I definitely share those concerns that we could see a bit of a split whether Labor try and do something or not in government on these issues of kind of the the well the future opposition changing into kind of a censorship big tech mm. being a very lefty sort of place that sort of debate which just won't help get any effective regulation passed. Mm. all right we might call call it quits on that but thanks everyone um great discussion today thanks everyone that's been active in the chat we really appreciate you you, you contributing you've been listening to burning platforms a fortnightly podcast from the australia institute's center for responsible technology it was recorded live in a virtual town hall on may 13. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced by Jennifer Macy and edited and mixed by Holly Forrest. Talk again in a fortnight.